Well, if you were like me, the story made you angry. I mean, when I heard the story, I was livid. It, it really raised my hackles when I heard about it. It happened back in April. A man named Michael Sharkey, a soldier serving in Afghanistan, we, he, he left home thinking his home was in good hands. He left to fight for our country in Afghanistan. But while he was gone, squatters took over his home. Despite his ownership, despite having no contract with these squatters, to live, they, they moved in. They decided they were going to live there. They brought their things into his house, and they changed the locks. The police told him they could do nothing, that it was actually a civil matter, and they were uh, out of any control to do anything about it, and they would have to, he would have to hire a lawyer, he would have to get a judge to do an order of eviction, and the police could handle, could do nothing. It was frustrating. It was, it, he felt violated. And it was frustrating to watch the story develop. It was frustrating for Sharkey, this law-abiding citizen, this soldier serving our country, a, a homeowner, a taxpayer, that his property was being violated like this. And it was frustrating to watch the story develop because no amount of logic, no amount of reason seemed to impact the thinking of those who had moved into his house. They simply saw that this house was empty. No one else was using it. So there was no reason they shouldn't move in, that they shouldn't live there, that they shouldn't do what they wanted. And they were perfectly happy to stay there. Until word came that, um, well, let's just say a, a motorcycle club that was very pro-soldier, a, a motorcycle club, had decided to pay them a visit. And word came that this motorcycle club was on their way, and for some reason, that's all it took to convince the squatters that they ought to move out, that they should just go ahead and leave. And so in the middle of the night, they packed up all of their things and they headed out. Well, we have very strong, or very strong feelings about right and wrong. We have very clear ideas of property rights. We don't like the idea of someone claiming something that they have no right to. It's not theirs. They didn't pay for it. They didn't suffer for it. It does not belong to them. And yet when it comes to this book and some of the things that we read in the Bible, very often we do just that. We find something in here and we like the sound of it. I mean, it, we find a promise that we like and, and it sounds good and you know, it's, it's going to look good on a on a card, a little thought of encouragement, or it's going to look great on a Facebook post. And, and so we do something that we call, we name it and claim it, and we say it's ours. But the reality is, what we're doing is we're squatting on Scripture, just as surely as the squatters were squatting on Michael Sharkey's property. There are a lot of great promises in here. There are some beautiful things that have been written here that give us hope. They give us help in time of need, but it is essential that we understand how to read them and how to apply them. Some of the promises that we read in this book, we read in the Bible, that God made to the original audience, those promises came with a price, a price that you and I did not pay. And to simply claim them because they sound good, because we wish that they were true, can be dangerous, misapplying 
misappropriating Scripture is a mistake. It is simply squatting on Scripture and making it say something to us that it was never meant to say. Now, there's probably no verse of the Bible that we are more guilty of misappropriating than Jeremiah 29, verse 11. And if you don't recognize the, cha- the book, chapter, and verse, I guarantee you would recognize the words. You see them on greeting cards. You see them on posters. You see them on plaques. You've seen them on Facebook posts. And I, you may have even seen them on a tattoo or two. Uh, it's a beautiful verse. It's an amazing promise. But when we divorce it from its context... It is misleading. And we have to stop and ask, what did God really say? When we read that verse, what is God really saying to us? It's in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is back there in your Old Testament. If you're using those Bibles we provide for you, it is page 656. It's just one little verse. God says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. As your preacher, I am constrained to apply Scripture within the proper rules of interpretation. I cannot simply lift a passage out of its setting, no matter how great it sounds. I cannot simply lift a passage out of its setting, whether that's the historical setting or the scriptural setting or a spiritual setting, and apply it like a band-aid to whatever hurt you've got. It doesn't work that way. And so I look at a passage like Jeremiah 29.11, and I have to ask, what is this verse really teaching me? What is it teaching us? What do I learn from a scripture like this? What is here for me? And the very first thing I realize is something I've told you many times not about me it's about God the problem with the way too many people apply this verse is they lift it right out of the Bible right out of the the book of Jeremiah right out of the time and place and occasion in which it was written right out of the midst of Jeremiah 29 they, they lift it out of Jeremiah 29 10 Jeremiah 29 12 and, and the rest of Jeremiah and they simply say this sounds good this sounds like a good promise this this is something I want this is God's promise for me this one's mine what makes us think we can do that? What makes us think we can do that with the Word of God? Yeah, I, I got to poking around Jeremiah a little bit more this week, and I thought, what else is in Jeremiah? You know, they call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. It's a, it's a very depressing book at times when you're reading through it. So I, I poked around, and I thought, well, if Jeremiah 29.11 says this, what does Jeremiah 11.29 say? And there is no Jeremiah 11.29. But... There is a Jeremiah 11.11, and it has a promise in it also. Jeremiah 11.11 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. How many people want that promise? You want that promise that God's not going to listen to you? That he's going to bring a disaster upon you that you cannot escape? Do you want that promise? Anyone? No one? No one wants to sign up for that one? In the same way that squatters moved on to 
Michael Sharkey's property, moved into his home, and they didn't pay for it, we didn't pay for this verse. We didn't pay for this promise. It's not ours just because we land on it, just because we claim it as our own. In 597 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon invaded Judah, rounded up 10,000 of the leading citizens in Jerusalem, people who had the, they were the movers, the shakers, they had the money, they had the power. He rounded up 10,000 citizens and moved them 500 miles to Babylon. They lost everything. They lost their homes, they lost their families, they lost their connection to, to God. What was next? And so from Jerusalem, Jeremiah writes to them and he tells them, Get on with your life. Get on with your lives. Build homes, plant gardens, plant vineyards, have kids, have grandkids, because you are going to be there for 70 years. You're going to be there for a long time. And after 70 years, those of you who are left will return home. That is your hope. That is your future. And the reality is it wasn't their hope, was it? It wasn't their future. It was the hope for their children. It was the hope for their grandchildren. It was that their people would not, uh, would not perish. It was not about personal fulfillment or their own happiness or their own plans. It was about God. It's about God has a plan for you, and, and it may look very different than your plan for you. When you read this verse and you try to apply this verse to your life, you have to realize it's not about you. It's about God. And what it tells us is he is a God who has a plan for his people, and he will not allow 70 years to stand in the way of his plan for you. Well, what are those plans? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know what his plan is for you. I can give you a place to start. I can give you a verse that is about you. How about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God's plan for you is to do good work. God's plan for you is to do good things. And I think if you get started doing those things, you'll start to see more and more of the plan that he does have for your life. Even when you can't see what's ahead, we learn that we can trust him. We can learn that he's always there. So it's not about you. It's about God. And looking at this verse, we also learn it's not about prosper. It's about purpose. You may have noticed we're reading today in the English Standard Version, the ESV, and it's worded differently than you usually see it on cards and, and other places. Usually, this verse is read in the NIV, the New International Version, and the New International Version says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord's plans to prosper you. We like that word prosper. That sounds pretty good. We would like to prosper. The uh, New Living Translation says, plans for good. Your old King James Bible says, thoughts of peace. But more often than not, when we read this, we like to hear the word prosper. I think people like the sound of that. I think they like the sound of that much better than what the English standard says here. The English standard says, I have plans for your welfare. I don't think anyone gets excited that God's plan for them is welfare. <laughs> you know, it sounds great, I guess, in its own way, but no one gets overly excited when they find out that God's plans for them are welfare. Well, welfare is really a much better understanding of the promise that God made for them. 
They were taken from their home. They were never going to return. They were going to spend 70 years bootlicking the Babylonians. And these were proud Jews. These were God's chosen people living in God's chosen nation, living in the city of David. And suddenly all of that was gone. And Jeremiah's promise isn't that they're going to prosper in Babylon, that they're going to make it big in Babylon. His promise is, it's not going to kill you. God is still with you. You are going to survive. We make a horrible mistake when we quote this verse to inspire prosperity because when we take it to heart, it really can inspire despair because suddenly we start wondering, if God's plan for me is to, for me to prosper, then why am I not prospering? If that's God's plan for me to prosper, for me to make it big, then why am I not prospering? Why, why is it that I am still struggling? Why, what am I doing wrong? Does God really have a plan for me? Is there really a God? Can I really know Him? You know, that's one of the big problems with this whole name it and claim it thing, with this whole scripture squatting thing. It's not about my plan. It's not about my plan for me. It's about God's plan for me. It's about the purpose for which He created me. And I have to let him be Lord. I have to let him define what prosper means in my life. And I have to trust that he knows what is for my good, what is for my welfare. I have to submit to his plan and not claim something that was never meant for me. So it's not about you. It's about God. It's about his plan. It's about his purpose. It's about what he has chosen for you. And the great thing is, once we understand that, then we're able to tell the story of our own hope. I think one of, the, one of the big problems with latching onto this verse, again, it's not about you, it's not about your story, it's not about your 70 years in exile, and it's not about your hope. You know, hope for those in exile back then looked very different than hope for you and me and what our hope looks like. Hope for those in exile looked very different than what hope looked like for Peter and, and hope looked like for Paul. And it's great to know these stories and to know what they trusted in because upon those stories, we can build our hope. We build hope upon hope. But we need to know our own story. We need to be able to tell stories, tell other people the story of our own hope. It's what Peter says. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's interesting, by the way, because if Christ is Lord of your life, then it's about his plan. It's not about yours. It's about his hope, not about yours. But he says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Always be prepared to tell people about the hope that you have. And the reason for the hope that is in you is not in Jeremiah 29, 11. It's in the things that God has revealed to you. It's in the way that God has built you and the, the hope that he has given you. It's about your own story, about the times when you didn't feel like you could hold on and somehow you made it through, about the times when you knew you couldn't get by on your own strength and somehow you, you managed to get through, that you didn't give up, that you didn't give in, and God proved himself faithful to you again. That's when you can tell people, let me tell you about my story. Let me tell you about my hope. Let me tell you about my Jesus. I love what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. He says, the, the glory of this mystery, this mystery, which is Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
when you learn to tell people the story of your own hope, of what Christ has done in you, what Christ in you has done for you, that changes your life and allows you to build hope upon hope. And that story will touch other people in ways that, that a Hallmark card or a, a Facebook post never could because they will see in you that this is real, this faith thing is, is real, that this is someone that they can trust in. And it's some place where they can find hope. Anyone can go to a store and buy a card that has Jeremiah 29, 11 on it. Anyone can find a nice image on the internet and post that to Facebook and tell everybody about Jeremiah 29, 11 and offer it as encouragement. But who has the right to Jeremiah 29, 11? Who, who owns that verse that we end up squatting on? Who does it really belong to? Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. And Jeremiah was a prophet, by the way. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus is speaking to the to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and the others, and he says to them, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Jesus says he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, and he says the Scriptures bear witness to him. So who does Jeremiah 29.11 belong to? It belongs to Jesus, doesn't it? He paid for it he bought it he fulfilled it we are we are squatting on Jesus's scripture but who else did Jesus buy who else did Jesus pay for he bought me he bought you John to go back to John chapter 5 verse 39 and 40 again Jesus says you search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they, it is the Scriptures that bear witness to me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, the problem, the, the answer to your despair, the answer to your depression, the answer to the, to the confusion and the muck and mire and mud of your life is not Jeremiah 29, 11. The answer is Jesus. Now, you can quote Jeremiah 29, 11 all day. In fact, you can pick any inspirational verse you want. Go ahead and quote Jeremiah 11, 11 for that matter. But without Jesus, it's just nice words. You send that to somebody in a card, this sounds good. But without Jesus, they're just, they're just nice words. They're, it makes for a heartwarming sentiment. But without Jesus, it's lifeless. Without Jesus, it's meaningless. And without Jesus, sooner or later, it will disappoint you because it's about Him. It's about the one who created you for his own divine purpose. It's about the one who truly gives you hope. It's about building your life upon him. It's about my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' love and righteousness. It's about realizing that it's nothing that you can do for yourself. No matter how many scriptures you learn to quote, no matter how many good things you do, 
It's about realizing that when you need a rock to stand on, it's not anything that you can do for yourself. That rock is going to be Christ. Every now and then we need a rock in our life, don't we? We need something solid to stand on, something to know that's not going to shift, it's not going to dump me, it's not going to leave me, it's not going to wreck my life. And the only one who promises us that, and the only one who can do that is Jesus. Maybe today's the day you take your stand on him. Maybe today's the day when you say, I relied on other things. I relied on some really good things, some things that sounded great, some things that seemed like they made a lot of sense. But without Christ, they were hollow. Without Christ, they were nothing. Well, we would love to pray with you today. We would love to share, that, share our faith with you and, and help you build hope upon hope as we come together today. Let's stand and sing.